Briefly, we want to let you know that you'll find the most current legislative updates at the end of this program and after the presentations. So where does the term Leatherneck come from? And that's a common question we get. It actually goes all back to colonial uh, early uh, history of the Marine Corps. And of course, the Marines had to go on board ship to keep the Navy, the sailors straight uh, <laughs> and protect the ship's cap. No, they were on board the ships, of course, as part of the ship's complement. And the Marines wore a leather collar around their neck. And as exists a little bit today, but certainly back then, the friendly uh, batter between the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, the Navy decided to refer to the Marines as leathernecks. So uh, now the actual purpose of the leather collar, which was used extensively during that time period in, in many uh, services, uh, supposedly served one of two purposes, maybe both. The first one, an obvious one, would be a protection against a saber blow when you were in close proximity and fighting with swords. The leather collar, of course, would protect you. Uh, the other story is that it helped kept the Marines' necks, heads up straight in a military fashion. So it probably served both purposes, but the actual term leatherneck uh, starts with back in the early 1800s, uh, and in the Colonial Marines with the leather collar, which was a very common piece of uh, the uniform during that period of time. Today we've got two guests visiting us for SoCal Military News and Views. Our first distinguished guest is Brigadier General Michael Aguilar. Uh, General Aguilar, welcome aboard. Oh, thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Uh, also, we have board member Victor Franco with us. Uh, howdy, Frank, Victor. Uh, good seeing you. <laughs> we are going to talk today about the Flying Leatherneck Museum, and I am excited as heck to talk about all of this. I want to I want to make sure that we get a chance to talk about the history of the Leatherneck Museum. But first, for our listeners' sake, why don't we give a little bit of background on our guests, starting with uh, you, if you would. Uh, General Aguilar. Okay, well, thank you, Mike. Uh, well, again, uh, Mike Aguilar, retired Brigadier General of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, I retired uh, in 2001, received my commission in uh, 1971. So that kind of puts a, an age on me there. Um, I'm one, very fortunate. I, I actually was able to achieve my childhood dream, uh, which was I was motivated through my father, who was a veteran of World War II, and flew in B-26s as a gunner flight engineer. Because of his stories and um, my upbringing, I aspired to be and serve in the military and be a military pilot. So uh, one day going, uh, unfortunately, skipping another class from college, I was crossing the campus and the Marine recruiters on were on campus. I walked up to them and a little naively asked him, Do the Marine Corps, does the Marine Corps fly? And he said, come with me, son. I have a test for you to take. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that started my trip as a, and career as a Marine and a Marine aviator. Uh, and I was fortunate to be able, as I said, to achieve my childhood dream, and that is to become a military pilot uh, in the best service I think our nation has. And so I was able to serve uh, 
proudly and had a most enjoyable career, 31-year career in the Marine Corps. Uh, as a primarily a helicopter pilot, I flew mostly attack helicopters, AH-1 Cobra helicopters. Uh, most of my career was here actually in Camp Pendleton. That's where the largest Marine aircraft group is located and uh, where my type of aircraft was at. So I commanded a squadron there, the air group. Uh, and then unfortunately, like most people, when they move up in their career, had to go to Washington, D.C., and spent the last five years of my career uh, in Washington and in Florida before I retired. So it was a great opportunity to, for me. Uh, the real only claim to fame I have, uh, in addition to be the first person of Mexican descent to make general officer in the Marine Corps, uh, I was, as far as I know, still the only aviator to run the Marine Corps Drill Instructor School here in San Diego, California. So I was able for two years to uh, torture my aging body there at the drill field. But it was an absolute wonderful experience and opportunity for me to, again, not only uh, serve in the military and help protect the nation, but to achieve my childhood dream. So that's more than anyone should know about me. <laughs> well, I think uh, my my dad, if he was still alive, would have a great conversation with you, sir. It's great to hear that story. <laughs> okay, thank uh, you. Uh, Victor, share a little about yourself. I'm I'm sorry to put you in the position where you have to follow that. Yeah, there is no following that. Uh, I, uh, you know, Southern California native, and and growing up uh, here in Southern California through the '70s and '80s, I had this great exposure to uh, not only the military because of so many facilities along the coast here uh, from from all the way uh, you know up north down through Long Beach and then into San Diego. Uh, just seeing the, the military aircraft going to air shows as a young kid, I was always very fascinated by aircraft and, and aviation in general. And then of course uh, was a big history buff and so Growing up, I, I always was was drawn to to military aviation and aviation in general. Um, as I moved through my career, you know, after college, uh, went into the uh, the lobbyist and consulting community, and and uh, but always kind of had my eye on on aviation and, and the military, and was fortunate enough to work with a number of aviation or DoD contractors over the years, and and now I still do that. Uh, now some of that has flowed into the public safety space, but um, about two years ago now uh, was down here in San Diego, driving by this this uh, Miramar Road and driving by the the home of Top Gun and the famous uh, Officers Club. There saw this beautiful little museum, bunch of aircraft parked outside. I walked in and uh, initially signed up to be a docent and uh, just volunteer, but by the time uh, the week was out. I was the senior government relations advisor <laughs> to the Flying Leatherneck Aviation Museum, and it's been a, a tremendous ride. And, and I'm just so happy to to help and be part of this great, uh, great museum and, and and great people. Yeah, it. I'm I'm so interested in it, and at the same time, I have never seen the Flying Leather, Leatherneck Museum, so I am I'm gonna really need you guys to help me understand when somebody comes to the museum um, or when they came to the museum in the past, what were they seeing? What kind of uh, aircraft is there? 
share with us what you would see walking into the museum. Sure. Well, the majority of the aircraft collection, and there are around 47 of aircraft, uh, really begin with World War II. They don't go back much further than that. And it covers the entire period from World War II up into our present day. So we had uh, uh, F-4, uh, F-6 Hellcats from World War II, uh, the TBM bomber, which, of course, the first President Bush uh, was shot down in. So we had that on display, uh, a MiG from Korea, some Korean War vintage aircraft, the very iconic Gullwing uh, Corsair, F4U Corsair aircraft was there. And of course, my favorite type of aircraft, uh, helicopters, starting from the very beginning of Marine Corps aviation in the 50s, several of those carrying on through the Vietnam era and some of those uh, uh, helicopters. Another very iconic helicopter we have is the uh, CH-46 uh, World War II, I'm sorry, uh, Vietnam vintage aircraft that the tandem rotor, I think a lot of people are familiar with. And the particular aircraft we have on display is what we call Lady Ace 09. When you're flying, uh, every squadron has a call sign, its own call sign uh, that you identify as you're flying around. Uh, and this squadron, HMM-165, was called Lady Ace, and the side number of the aircraft was 09. So we refer to it as Lady Ace 09. The historic significance of this aircraft is this is the actual aircraft that flew the American ambassador in the American flag off the American embassy out of Vietnam when we left Vietnam. Wow. So a uh, very uh, important historical aircraft that we have on display uh, or had on display at the Marine Corps Command Museum uh, located at uh, Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. So that's a little bit about the, the history. It goes back again from uh, primarily from World War II all the way up to our present day with the F-18 and Harrier jump jets that we have. Uh, of course, the helicopters, all the helicopters that the Marine Corps has right now. Uh, and then in addition to that, we have artifacts that are on display inside the small building that existed. Uh, those are all in storage right now. Uh, the museum has been closed since April of this year. But we have a huge number of displays uh, that, again, tell the story of Marine Corps aviation and the people who served in Marine Corps aviation. Uh, an interesting side note. Uh, one of the displays we used to have, and it was unique to Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, was the Navajo Code Talker display. And oh, people cool. would ask, what the hell was the Marine Corps Aviation Museum do with the Navajo Code Talkers? Well, of course, in addition to the history of Marine Corps Aviation, we also shared the history of Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. And during World War II, that is where the Navajo Code Talkers demonstrated the Navajo code talking the you hear about with the Ghost Whisper movie. That is where the uh, Navajo code talker demonstration took place uh, at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. So we have there dis a display of the Navajo code talker uh, uh, there at the museum. So it's a great, uh, again, not only about Marine Corps aviation, but some of the other history that goes along Marine Corps uh, history-wise. That's fantastic. The space that you were in in Miramar was roughly what size? 
It was seven and a half acres for the aircraft displays all outside. And the small building we had uh, was just around uh, 2,600 square foot. Uh, we have, in addition to the uh, museum facility and the grounds, a restoration hangar, a very large restoration hangar. And that's where the preservation and restoration of the aircraft takes place. And of course, the 3,000 plus other artifacts that were unable to be displayed in the museum or kept in that facility. Now, I understand, Victor, you were a docent at the museum, correct? Correct. I, d I don't know how long. It sounded like you jumped into a new job quite quickly, but how long were you a docent? <laughs> well, I was a docent there for about a year, and, and the museum unfortunately went through some closures because of the COVID uh, situation and and uh, unfortunately, we were adjacent to some facilities there at Miramar that uh, housed some folks that had come back from different parts of the world and 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 uh, cruise ships, and uh, and then we also were closed because we there was a, a concern that the the base wanted to be mission ready, and so uh, they were very careful about not getting the general base population infected with COVID, and so we as a precaution that the, they had closed. But I was there about a year. And I, even though I was working doing some government affairs work, uh, it still is so much fun to be there as a docent, to, to talk to veterans, to talk to folks. We would get folks that would come in, not only the children, and you see little kids you know, looking at the aircraft and being so fascinated, but you also get a lot of veterans that come by and say, you know, I flew in an aircraft like that, or I used to work, I used to turn wrenches on that helicopter. And so it was a really great uh, experience, not just about being patriotic, but also uh, from a historical significance. I mean, it's just great to be there and and to see those 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 that history up close. And, and Mike, I, I please don't we don't want to imply that the reason we close is because Vic became a docent. That was just <laughs> coincidental, okay? And nothing to do with the closure. <laughs> I'll take your word for it, sir. Okay. <laughs> now I understand that uh closed and the future of the Flying Leatherneck Museum is at a, another location. Can you tell me what has happened since then? Sure. If I may, Mike, step back a little bit just to clarify the relationship and the organizations uh, that are involved here. So the museum at Miramar was what we call the Command Museum. It was owned by the Marine Corps, uh, and all the artifacts and displays were owned by the Marine Corps. Because of budgetary constraints and the challenges, as Vic shared about COVID and other things that were going on at the last two years, uh, the Marine Corps, the commanding officer of the air station, decided to close the museum because of the financial challenges he was facing. Uh, so for around 18 months, the Flying Leatherneck Historical Foundation, which for the past 20 years, had provided financial support, was responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the museum, and of course, the scheduling and organizing of the docent support. Uh, we entered into negotiations with the Marine Corps to try to save the museum on site by privatizing it. Uh, those discussions, unfortunately, uh, were at a dead end, uh, but fortunately, during those discussions, we were approached by the city of Irvine asking if they might be able to relocate the museum uh, and the collection to the former Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, which is now called Great Parks. Uh, 
in Irvine and happened to have been the original home of the Command Museum. So when they closed down El Toro and moved up here to or moved down to Miramar, the museum, uh, which was in existence at that time, moved with it. So Irvine then has proposed, and we are currently uh, and have been working for the last 18 months with the Marine Corps to reach an agreement that will loan the entire collection, the aircraft and artifacts, to our new foundation. So in addition to the Flying Leathernick Historical Foundation, which has been, which had for the past 20 years been supporting the museum at Miramar, we have created a second foundation called the Flying Leatherneck Aviation Museum Foundation. So now both foundations are working to relocate and reestablish the museum at Great Parks, the former Marine Corps Air Station El Toro. Uh, the city is moving forward very uh, aggressively with uh, refurbishing the facility they've identified. It's a World War II hangar, a very large 215 square foot hangar facility with two large hangar bays, uh, where we believe it can fit the entire aircraft collection and display, or the majority of the displays in the facility. Uh, they've been working very aggressively and just recently the city council approved a $7.2 million contract to start the refurbishing of the surrounding grounds. The new museum grounds, which will include the museum facility, an, a library, an innovation center, and an event center total 115 uh, acres compared to the 7.5 acres we're on right now. So we'll be part of a larger complex the city calls the Cultural Terrace uh, Facility. And on that facility, again, will be this large 215-square-foot uh, uh, facility that will house the museum. So the two foundations, the Flying Leatherneck Historical Foundation and the Flying Leatherneck Aviation Museum, have been working with a great deal of support with uh, Vic and his group uh, to move forward with the relocation of the, uh, of the museum. So that's where we sit right now. We're very anxious, and we believe uh, we will receive a favorable response from the Marine Corps, allowing us to move forward with that. Uh, relocation plan and reestablishment of the museum. Uh, I, I do have to give credit to, to Vic and the help we received. Uh, we probably would not have gotten this far had it not been with the uh, local and net congressional support Vic was able to, to get for us to, to help uh, in our negotiations and discussions with the Marine Corps. I'll let Vic uh, pick up on what, what help he's provided for us in that arena. And if I can, you know, I, I, you talk about, and, and Mike, you and I have had conversations about the the national kind of temperature right now and how divisive the country is in some in some regards. Um, but what was beautiful about this project, and when we approached the local congressional leadership, Scott Peters and Daryl Issa, who, who represents parts of San Diego, um, and then eventually approaching uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, she put forth a plan that would have essentially given us a line item in the National Defense Authorization Act, which for many of you know, is the overriding budget for the entire military. When she proposed that and took it to her Republican colleagues in the Senate, there was not one no vote. 
everybody was super supportive. Mitch McConnell and his team uh, put that on the NDAA agenda. And it wasn't until the very last minute, probably a couple more processes before at that time, President Trump would have signed the NDAA, giving us that privatization option and, and being able to remain at Miramar, uh, the Marine Corps asked that it be removed. And it was unfortunate. It was a setback for us. But uh, but we understand, you know, how what the Marine Corps was was thinking. We now understand a little bit better of kind of their overall motives. It wasn't necessarily personal against us. I just think it was a decision more about budget. And and uh, it's all worked out. I think at the end of the day, it's it's pushed us in, the, in a great direction, meeting up with the city of Irvine. And uh, and again, like the general said, they have been phenomenal in terms of welcoming us. You now have two members of Congress up there that have written letters that are reaching out to the Marine Corps on a daily basis to say, where's my agreement? I want this museum in Irvine. And and then when you think about some of the individuals we've met, some of the uh, veteran or, uh, organizations and groups, the people that were at uh, Marine Corps Air Station uh, El Toro at the time or in the past, um, they're so excited about this because it's almost like coming home to them. And so it's it's a really great situation that we found ourselves in. Well, uh, congratulations on getting as far as you've gotten so far. I, I'm confident that you guys will end up uh, completing the deal. I, I'm going to change directions a little bit because I'm not going to assume that if my wife heard this podcast, she'd even understand what a leatherneck is. So if you would. <laughs> so where does the term leatherneck come from? And that's a common question we get. It actually goes all back to colonial uh, early uh, history of the Marine Corps. And of course, the Marines had to go on board ship to keep the Navy, the sailors straight uh, <laughs> and protect the ship's camp. No, they were on board the ships, of course, as part of the ship's complement. And the Marines wore a leather collar around their neck. And as exists a little bit today, but certainly back then, the friendly uh, batter between the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, the Navy decided to refer to the Marines as leathernecks. So uh, now the actual purpose of the leather collar, which was used extensively during that time period in, in many uh, services, uh, supposedly served one of two purposes, maybe both. The first one, an obvious one, would be a protection against a saber blow when you were in, in close proximity and fighting with swords. The leather collar, of course, would protect you. Uh, the other story is that it helped kept the Marines' necks, heads up straight in a military fashion. So it probably served both purposes, but the actual term leatherneck uh, starts with back in the early 1800s uh, and in the colonial Marines with the leather collar, which was a very common piece of uh, the uniform during that period of time. During World War II, John Wayne movie called The Flying Leathernecks. So uh, as a result of that uh, movie, uh, when the museum started here at Miramar, we went ahead and actually was copyrighted uh, with the uh, movie industry. So we were able to have that established in our foundation down, down here as the Flying Leathernecks Historical Foundation and, of course, the Flying uh, Leatherneck Aviation Museum. So that's where the term Leatherneck and Flying Leathernecks come from. John Wayne has done his part for the military, has he not? He continues to serve the nation, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm going to 
kind of jump forward somewhere in the future, we're going to have our flying leatherneck museum back. When do you expect that to take place? And what can, what can people do to be involved in helping that happen? Well, we're very excited about, uh, we think, to the establishment, the reestablishment, re returning of the museum to uh, El Toro, Great Park. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we have been, until we have a final agreement from the Marine Corps, we have cautiously been moving forward with fundraising. Uh, it's going to take quite a bit of money uh, to reestablish the facility and move the aircraft up there. A great deal of that support is coming from the city. They are the owner of the facility, so they are responsible for making the new facility be new facility up to current uh, code and standards. So they'll take care of that, but we'll be responsible for the uh, exhibits, the displays, and getting the aircraft all uh, up and uh, up there. And of course, hiring a professional museum staff, and of course, outfitting the offices a museum store, uh, uh, of course, some sort of uh, catering, eatery uh, uh, arrangements for people. So what we're going to be looking and what we're targeting over the next two years is a total of $5 million to be raised, $2 million uh, hopefully by this year, uh, and then $3 million the next year. And the way people can help right now is he can go on our Flying Leatherneck Historical Foundation website, which is www.flyingleathernecks, with an S, plural, dot org. www.flyingleathernecks.org. And they can go ahead and uh, uh, make online donations if they would like right now, because uh, it does cost the current foundation money to keep operating and pursue the work necessary uh, with the uh, reestablishment and relocation of the new museum. So there's a lot of work that's going on and uh, money, revenue necessary to keep that operation going. But that's how people can, can help. We are going to establish a page on that website to keep people updated with our progress. And as soon as we get approval from the, from the Marine Corps, we will start a major capital fundraising campaign, again, to look towards the First year of goal of two million, and then next year's goal of five million. Uh, so they can start contributing right now. If there are people who are looking to maybe make large contributions through their IRAs, you can do their annual deductions through that and get a, a, a tax deduction. Um, we will accept those, of course, and help with making those arrangements through their finan financial advisor. Uh, so there's multiple ways that they can help with uh, our fundraising. Uh, and of course, just go online. Our phone number's there. We have someone at the office 24, uh, not 24, during the normal work days, five days a, a week. And we certainly can provide information for them as to how they can help contribute. But keep informed. And when we did start this major capital fundraising campaign, I would ask to be prepared to get the checkbooks out uh, and help us reach our goal of $2 million. Without getting into specifics, uh, we've already got pledges, uh, only pledges, of uh, one a little over $1.5 towards our two, first $2 million gold. So there are people already that have pledged significant amount of revenue to help with this effort. But it's going to be a grassroots effort. Uh, 
Uh, it's going to be a museum that is for the public and we want to, and for the next generation of Americans to be able to develop an appreciation for the contributions of and sacrifices of aviators and Marine Corps aviation. Uh, but more importantly, we hope, uh, in addition to honoring those sacrifices and contributions, inspire the next generation of Americans as to what it takes to enjoy our freedoms and privileges that we all enjoy here in this great nation of ours. Now, I I know more about Army museums. Uh, I've been in Fort Benning. I've been to Fort Bragg. How many museums does the Marine Corps have? There is actually very few. We have one national museum uh, of the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia. Uh, very difficult for people to get back there, of course, especially during COVID. But there's a beautiful museum, National Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia. Uh, there are two there used to be three, but there are now only two command museums uh, that are sponsored by the Marine Corps. One at the Marine Corps, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego, and the other one, Marine Corps Recruit Depot uh, Paris Island. The challenges with those two command museums is access to the base is limited. There are also a couple of other museums, one at Camp Pendleton, uh, that's not a command museum, but it's a a, uh, a mechanical uh, Amtrak museum that they have there. Difficult to get on. Uh, Camp Pendleton, of course, for people. And then there are some other private museums uh, that are around, uh, but there really are only three Marine Corps museums in existence, National Museum and the two at the Recruit Depot. So this museum, which is will be open to the public, uh, what we believe complement the National Museum of the Marine Corps, because not everyone can travel to Washington, and we have a huge tourist industry here in Southern California. So we believe this museum, in addition to the other museums that Marine Corps have, will be a, a great boost and benefit uh, to sharing the history and legacy of the Marine Corps, and in this case, specifically, Marine Corps aviation. Yeah, I'm, I have to admit, I'm looking very forward to, to, uh, visiting when it first opens. As far as the docent program is concerned, and I know we're way ahead of the curve in terms of when you're going to open again, but how many docents do you need to maintain the museum? Yeah, we don't know at this point. Uh, for the museum at uh, Miramar, which is a good data point, uh, we had a, a volunteer group of around 70 docents that uh, we, we organize. Uh, so we expect that we'll have to do in the vicinity of 70 plus. Uh, we'll, we'll be open uh, right now six, uh, seven days a week um, is the plan, of course, except for several holidays during the year. But we're going to be open pretty much 360 uh, uh, days out of the year. Uh, so that will require a large number of docents to be available to help with that. So we we don't know the exact number right now, Mike, but we know it's going to be way uh, right uh, of the 70 that we had here at Miramar. And Mike, if I could add to that, you know, we're we're definitely going to take advantage of a lot of the the veteran community who really uh, spent a lot of time, spent their early years uh, serving at El Toro, and we've already met with a few. And so we think there's a lot of folks out there, particularly in this. And I think we're in a great middle point, right? We're in Orange County. We have this draw from San Diego, draw from L.A. County. And so folks that have actually been and worked inside those hangars, 
we're looking forward to those folks coming back and spending a little time uh, pointing out some of the unique qualities of not only the displays, but also the building itself. It's a very place. And, and just when you walk inside, uh, we were talking, you can still smell oil and hydraulic fuel, uh, fluid and fuel in there. And, and there's just so much history there. And so we're hoping that'll also draw some, some veterans to come back as docents. I'll add, Mike, that you really don't have to be a Marine or a Marine uh, have been in Marine Corps aviation to be a docent. Aviation enthusiasts, people who love history, uh, we'll, we'll educate them uh, and make sure they understand the displays and the history, not only of Marine Corps aviation, but El Toro. Uh, so it, you don't have to be or have you don't have to have been a Marine or have been in Marine Corps aviation to be a docent. Uh, you just like you just need to be a, an airplane lover and enthusiast of the military. All right. Well, I don't tell too many people this, but when I sat in front of the recruiter, I was actually supposed to be an Apache helicopter pilot. So put me on the uh, docent list, if you would, because I'd love to do that. Um, you got it. <laughs> you got um, it. One one last, last quick one, Victor. Weren't you talking to a uh, group recently about the uh, museum? Because I heard that story and I just wanted our listeners to get a chance to hear some of that. Well, again, I think it's it goes back to we've we've met some great groups in, in during this time period. And we happened to be speaking to some folks. It was a Marine Corps League up in uh, they called themselves the El Toro Detachment 17. Great group of people there. And. Uh, one of the questions they asked was, "Hey, can we can we come home?" And I and it really struck me because uh, obviously it was, you know, when you're young and 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 you have those experiences and and working with other people, other young people, and that commitment they have to serve and and doing the jobs that they did, it it, it really it really struck me, and I and I'm excited about that part of it, the 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 rich history that is there at the museum. It was here in, in, in Miramar. It'll be there again at El Toro. Uh, it just, it's a beautiful, uh, it's been a beautiful experience, a great experience. And it's great to meet so many great people uh, that, that are excited about it and just, they want to come home and, and help. That's, that's outstanding. And I, I've learned a lot about what's going on. I certainly hope we can hear from you guys somewhere down the road so we can hear more about uh, the progress you're making. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to SoCal Military News and Views. I appreciate it. And for those of our listeners that are wondering, you can get this anywhere you get your audio. So come to SoCalMilitaryNewsAndViews.com. Have a chance to check it out there. We'll also make sure all of the information related to the Flying Leatherneck Museum is available for our listeners. So thank you, gentlemen, so much for coming on board. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.